have your Bibles, turn in them to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29. That's going to be our passage this week. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29. This past week when I was flying, I had to fly back, and I hate flying as much as I hate airports. I don't like flying and I don't like airports because long lines equal cranky people. You know, you've been there. The TSA line is where you can lose your salvation. <laughs> you've got to get, you have to take all your clothes off now, I think, to go into a screen. <laughs> I hate airlines. And what I hate about the airport is that there's so much pushy and everybody's pushing and rushing and everybody is out for themselves. They'll run you over. While I was sitting there waiting for my plane, I watched the way that people were excited to get onto the plane. I was flying southwest, and the southwest had a first come, first serve, but if you had preferential treatment, if you were, you, they divided your tickets into class A, class B, class C, and then there was my ticket. I told Stephanie I was sitting next to a chain convict at one point. That's not true. It was a very nice man that I sat next to, or should I say sat in between. And so they call out, and people even pay for these, these tickets. They want the preferential treatment. They want to be first in line. They want to receive the best seat. They want the window seat because it's first come, first serve. They want to have room to put their luggage in the luggage compartments above. They want to get in and sit down and get that room and fall asleep so that they don't have to allow you to sit next to them. So that you'll just walk on past them so not to bother them. So they called the class A and the class A came up. I think they were carrying wine glasses and had a monocle. They were very important people. Then they called class B, and the class B went in. They came in, and they got the remaining seats and the remaining luggage compartments. And then they called class C. And everybody, of course, rushed those 20 of us that were left. And when I walked onto the plane, I felt, just honest to God truth, I was embarrassed. I didn't feel like I was part of the, the plane. The plane was 80 to 90% full, and I was embarrassed when I walked on there. I looked all around for luggage compartment to put my, my book bag because it wasn't going to fit underneath the, the seat in front of me, and there was none left. Then I had my ticket, and I thought C8 was my ticket, and I was looking around. I didn't realize that it was, hope you find a seat ticket. And so everyone was already in their spots, and the only thing left were the middle seats. And there were no desirable people to sit next to. So there were these two fellas, one who was a bodybuilder that I had to sit, squeeze in between and I felt like such a burden to them. I really felt like a nuisance on the plane. That's how I felt. But what I realized is that what I was feeling for a moment is how many people feel their entire lives. They live a day-by-day -day reality of feeling like they are less important than the rest of the world. The world has many people whose entire lives are lived feeling like they're unwelcome or unworthy members of the human race. This has always been true. 
The world, no matter the race or religion, has divided people into different classes of people. It's not just an American phenomenon. Some are noble and others ignoble. That's usually the dividing line. They're man or they're woman. They're rich or they're poor. They're slave or they're master. They're lord or they're serf. They're Brahmin or they're untouchable. They're black or they're white. But no matter what, society has always created a social hierarchy whereby some individuals receive preferential treatment and others don't. But such a reality has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But what should be ain't always so. We say amen, but are we ready to live that reality of one body? You may have overcome racism and sexism, but have you learned to love the person who hates you? Have you learned to forgive the unforgivable? Have you learned to love the person who needs more? than you and who is very needy have you learned to care for the elderly for the widows and for the orphans have you learned to love those who have less gifts than you do and lesser abilities than you do we are all one in christ the apostle paul faced a terrible situation in the church at corinth the church had taken the unifying ordinance of the Lord's Supper and had turned it into an opportunity to divide. Members of the church had come to the Lord's Supper for themselves and not for others. In many ways, the church today does this very same thing. We have made the Lord's Supper a time of somber personal reflection and repentance of sin rather than as a unifying celebration of being grafted into the one body of Christ. There is terror in many of our hearts as we begin to take the, the bread, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Are we worthy to do such a thing? And the answer is no. None of you are worthy. Even the prayed up is unworthy. But in many of our churches, we teach that it's a time where you stay quiet and ask God to forgive you of your sins. I pray to God that this morning when we observe the Lord's Supper, that it is not the first time this week you have asked God to forgive you of your sins. Don't let it be once a month that you remember that you are in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is an everyday, moment-by-moment -moment reality. So the Lord's Supper is not the moment where we come and confess our sins. I want this morning to reestablish this truth 
that the Lord's Supper is a corporate celebration of our victory in Christ and our perpetual proclamation of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this church. I pray that you would unite this church around one loaf and one cup. Rich and poor, black and white, male and female, spiritually mature and spiritually immature, all partake of the one body and drink of the one cup. God, make this church one body around your table. Amen. Look at your passage, if you would. I want to take 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 29, and I want to unpack it around these two truths. Namely, that this is a corporate celebration, and it is a proclamation of the gospel. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29. Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself." The first point I want to make this morning is that the Lord's Supper is a corporate celebration. The Lord's Supper is a corporate celebration. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says this, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. The question that many of us should ask when we see this is, what does Paul mean by the concept of an unworthy worthy manner so many churches have taken this to mean that that means non-christians who take the lord's supper are taking it in an unworthy manner now though the recipients of the lord's supper have always been historically been baptized believers that's not what paul means by unworthy manner he is not speaking of lost people taking the Lord's Supper. Though if you're lost, don't take the Lord's Supper. It's not for you. The Lord's Supper is for the believer. But that's not what Paul means by unworthy. Others say that this means that Christians who take the Lord's Supper must have confessed all of their sins before they take the Lord's Supper. That when we take the Lord's Supper without confessing our sins, without repenting of our sins, we are unworthy. And again, while such a practice is profitable, it should be the daily reality of every Christian. And not just at the time when we come to the Lord's table. Every one of us who is a Christian is still in need of God's grace moment by moment. What we are at the mercy of doing as Bible readers is to make sure that we take the text and apply it in its context. 
Twitter has ruined the concept of a context for the modern generation. You give someone 140 characters, they say something, and because it's taken outside of the context of the larger conversation and everything that's going on, people's careers are ruined. It happens all the time. Bob said this in 140 characters. Taken out of context, they lose their job. We do that in the scriptures all the time. We take one verse, we apply that verse, we read that verse, memorize that verse, and we apply it in our lives and never stop and ask the question, what did it mean in its larger passage? And so that's where we come to today. What Paul means by unworthy manner is this. He is talking specifically to the problem in Corinth of those who were taking the Lord's Supper in an abusive and divisive way. Look at verses 20 through 22 up at the top. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. He says, you're not even doing it correctly. Why? For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. So you have two extremes here. You have one who is, who is engorging himself. In the context, he's speaking about the rich among those in Corinth. Corinth had done a good job of dividing itself along really rich and really poor lines. They had lost their city, and there were no land rights, and so those who were businessmen came back in, bought up all the land, and those who were there, who were the citizens, remained poor. So you had a large distribution of wealthy versus, it was, it was a large difference. There was really no solid middle class. And so you had rich and poor, and the rich were coming, and they were getting drunk while others were going hungry. This was in the context of what the early church celebrated called an agape feast, the love feast. Kind of like a Baptist potluck. But they would do it every week. They would do it every week, and they would also celebrate the Lord's Supper. So Paul is saying, listen, what is meant to be the Lord's Supper amongst your agape feast is not really the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper demonstrates the unity in Christ that the body has, not disunity. Look at what he says. Don't you have homes to eat in? Or do you despise? That means in the Greek, do you look down on others? That is the church of God. And again, Paul has in mind the idea of one body. And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. The unworthy manner that Paul is speaking about here is those who are taking the Lord's Supper in a divisive state with the church. Look at what 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says. Paul says there is one bread so that we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. In verse eleven seventeen, in our same passage, Paul says this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, 
Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When the church was meeting together, Paul was hoping as every apostle, as every pastor, as every father of children hopes his children will do, that when the family comes together, they won't be fighting. There won't be division and hatred. But that when the body comes together, there will be unity. Look at what he says. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, remember, Paul's idea of church in 1 Corinthians is one body with many members. See chapter 12. But when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Greg Allison doctor of ecclesiology, professor of ecclesiology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says the passage bars unworthy participation. And by unworthy participation, the problem in the church at Corinth was one of divisiveness rather than one of unity. That is the unity and interdependence of people in the church, which is the body of Christ. The wealthier Corinthians were disrespectful of their poorer brothers and sisters during the celebration, thus making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is a corporate matter. The question today for us is do we divide? the body of Christ, when we take the Lord's Supper. And only you can answer that. While we don't do the exact same thing that the Corinthian church was doing and that we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday alongside an agape feast, while we don't do that, the question is, are you coming to this table taking of the same bread as a brother or sister in this one church that you are divided with? Are you taking of the same cup as the races and the genders that Monday through Sunday of the other 30 days of this month you hate and mistreat? If you do, you are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The issue is, are you at a divide in this church or are you one? Let's look at how that works. The Lord's Supper is a perpetual proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 26. In the same passage, eleven twenty-six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Paul says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That means that our participation in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then what are we proclaiming when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup? Some of us are simply proclaiming, I don't want to be left out. I came this morning. I see that they got the Lord's table here. And if I let the cup pass from me or the plate pass in front of me, People will know that I'm not saved, so I will take it anyway. That's the wrong proclamation to have. 
Paul says we are proclaiming, namely, the death and the return of Jesus. We are saying to the world in this one act, we are Christians. But what does that mean? So what are we proclaiming? Number one, we are proclaiming a historical reality. As of one body, we are proclaiming a historical reality. First, that Christ died. Same book, chapter 15, verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Same word in the Greek for proclaim. Greek for proclaim. But some people find it hard to believe that Jesus really raised from the dead. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim to the world that a man called Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified like a common criminal, 2,000 years ago, died for our sins in accordance with the promises of the Scripture, was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he first appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then to Paul. We are proclaiming a historical reality when we put that cracker, we use crackers in this church, when we put, I think we should use Cuban bread, by the way. That's my opinion. When you put that cracker in your mouth, you say, I am proclaiming the historical reality of a dying Savior and a rising God. That's what you're saying. Every one of us, so what are we here for this morning? It's not for morbid introspection that we come and feel guilty about our sins. It is to proclaim Jesus died, really. We are saying we really believe that. If you don't really believe that, let the bread and the cup pass from you. What did our passage say? Those who do this in an unworthy manner, again, it has a broader application. It has its, specific it has its specific application of being in the one body. But you're not a part of the one body if you don't agree with us that Jesus was a historical reality. You are not part of this one body if you do not confess with us the historical reality of Jesus Christ. This is not a self-help country club. This is not a self-help seminar. We are confessing and proclaiming a historical reality that all of us will be saved by what Jesus of Nazareth did on the cross 2,000 years ago. But then there is a theological proclamation that we make. As often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death and his return. That's what Paul says. So what is the theological proclamation that we make as we drink of the cup or eat of the bread and drink of the cup? Namely, that Christ died for sins. Anybody can die. Every one of us will die. This past week, I was, I was inundated with death all around me. Everyone on dad's floor was in, was in need of salvation. They were in need. They were on death. They were at death's doorstep. 
Several of them passed away while I was there. You saw the empty rooms that once held living bodies. We are saying, though, that Christ died specifically for sins in a way that no other person can do. When we take of the bread, we say it was his body. When we drink of the cup, we say it was his blood that saves us. And only his body and blood saves us. As often as you do this, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Jesus wants us to remember that he died for sins. We proclaim that salvation was earned by Christ on our behalf and that our union with him guarantees our righteousness before God. So in the Lord's Supper, we are saying we are united to Christ. We are saying we are one with Christ today if we take of that bread, drink of that cup. But what we are also saying is that we are one with one another. There is an ecclesiological proclamation. That's a big word, and it just means a church proclamation. Namely this, that we believe Christ died for my sins and for your sins. The same exact way. That regardless of your social status, Regardless of your gifts, regardless of your perceived holiness, regardless of your race, regardless of your wealth, regardless of whether you are a preacher or you are a mere, or you are a mere member, just a participant, that no matter that, we are united in one body to be one church. That's what we're saying. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we do so corporately, not by ourselves. Together one loaf was broken and shared to all Christ's disciples to eat. Together one body was given to the many. Together all disciples drank from the one cup as a symbol of Christ's blood poured out on all his disciples. When we eat the bread and drink from the cup, Remember that all men are saved by the one Lord, Jesus Christ, and that all those who partake it are now one body. We proclaim to the world that the church is one body made up of many members who are all guided by the one head, which is Christ. You know, we talk about sexual sin in the church all the time. We talk about how bad sexual sin is. And the Bible speaks so much about divisiveness, and we tolerate that sin more than any other. God hates it. Listen to the cosmic reality. Listen to the, to the spiritual reality that you have been grafted into. One body. All unworthy. It doesn't matter what your race tells you, or what your culture tells you, or what your professor tells you, or what the world tells you. Men are no better than women. Women are no better than men. Black is no better than white. White is no better than black. All are one 
in Christ Jesus. When you take that bread and that cup this morning, celebrate Jesus' victory over those divisions. Finally, we proclaim an eschatological hope. What does it mean to say eschatology? It means we proclaim a forward-thinking gospel. We don't believe this is it. A lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people will go to different gurus or different self-help teachers or different religions in order to say, I found myself or I've, I've got a benefit. Now I've overcome something. They want to overcome, maybe it's a, a moral failure of maybe alcohol addiction or drug addiction or maybe, maybe a, a sexual uh, dis, you know, uh, uh, debauchery, maybe something like that. And so they go into these different places and whatever can help them now, that's fine. And by the way, AA has helped a lot of alcoholics get off alcohol. Christian, don't. If, if, if a brother or sister tells you they're going to AA or, or a non-believer tells you to go, they're going to AA, that is fantastic. Alcoholics Anonymous has helped many get over alcohol. My brother-in-law was helped, helped uh, through Alcoholics Anonymous. But we're not trying to get people off alcohol here. We're not talking about making you better people. We're talking about making you kingdom people, and the kingdom is already, but not yet. Paul says, as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death, and what? Do it until he returns. This morning, when we take that bread and put it in our mouth, and we drink that cup, we are saying, Jesus, like he was raised is going to raise my body. I thought an awful lot this week about resurrection and what happens when we die, as you might imagine. And I began to ask, God, is that really what's going to happen? How, God, will you take this body before me? All of the bodies that I saw that were clearly deteriorating, they had lost their muscle mass, they had lost their color. Dad had lost so much of his color. He couldn't even breathe. There were tubes down his throat. He had no brain faculty that, that they could give to us. He, he was not talking to us or speaking. He was in a coma. And I'm looking at this body, just this shell of a man, and I'm asking, God, how would you do that? How would you bring this body of death and decay back to life? And I put my hand on my father and I said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. But you promised in your word that you will. And that because I have Jesus, he'll do the same for my body. We proclaim this morning that we believe in a real resurrection. That we believe in a real and literal life in eternity. When we partake the Lord's Supper, we proclaim that the Lord's return will come. It is, it is a guarantee to consummate what he has begun in us. He has begun a good work in us. It is not complete. When you see dying bodies, that's not a complete work. It will only be complete when that body is raised 
to eternal and incorruptible flesh. We proclaim that that has already happened in one man and that it didn't happen in any other man. Lazarus, which by the way, they're calling dad Lazarus. I think it's a good nickname because it was, border, it was borderline miraculous. No doubt extraordinary providence. But you know what happened to Lazarus that didn't happen to Jesus? Lazarus was raised to die again. Dad has a second opportunity to live some more, but dad will too die. And so whether we escape it now, and maybe again, certainly we will all die, but one man didn't. One man came out of the grave with a new body. The first fruits, says Paul, of the resurrected life that every one of us, when we eat at this table today, are going to proclaim, that's going to happen to me. That's going to happen to my loved ones who knew Jesus. They're going to be raised. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The apostles believed in the Lord's death, but what they struggled with was believing in his resurrection. But once he appeared to them, they began to proclaim not only his resurrection, but the res resurrection of all those who believe in his name, including themselves. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. Here is what we proclaim. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, but by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our passage this morning has called us to recognize the victory that Christ has won for us in his resurrection and through his death. I want us to remember this morning before we take the Lord's Supper that the Lord's Supper is a corporate celebration. There is no division in our body. If you are divided in this church, repent of those sins. And real repentance begins with a face-to-face -face conversation with those who you're divided against. Nothing, no act of worship will please God more this week than going to that brother and sister and saying, I'm sorry, be my brother, be my sister. But the Lord's Supper is also a celebration in our victory in Christ. It has a historical component, a theological component, an ecclesiological component, and an eschatological component. Because we, through our observance of that Lord's Supper, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want us all to remember our collective unity in Christ. I want us all to repent of the division that we may share in the body. I want us all to celebrate. Don't see this moment of somberness. The somberness around the Lord's table cannot be found in the Scripture. It is a celebration. I want us to celebrate the victory Christ has won for us.
And finally, I want us all, those who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, to proclaim the entire gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Would you pray with me? Jesus, there are many benefits of your table. The many benefits of your table is that, number one, you unite us to you. It is in you that we have our salvation. There is no salvation to be had apart from our relationship to you. But Jesus, you also unite us to our brothers and sisters in the faith. That's why we can meet people who we've never known before and who look different than us and who we've been taught to hate. That's why we can look at them and call them brother and sister because your table not only unites us to you, but unites us also to one another. In this year, as we remember to stir up love and good works amongst one another, let us remember that the greatest work is to be one, as you, Jesus, and the Father are one. Lord, let us proclaim boldly today and to remember the benefit that you have won our salvation for us. None of us have salvation in our own works. We will not earn salvation on our own. But you, Jesus, have earned it for us through your cross. And as we do this today, let us remember and celebrate your victory over not only sins, but over death itself. We celebrate you, Jesus. Let us be eager to proclaim this, to look to our brothers and sisters next to us with love, put our arms around and see that we have a fellow in the fight. Someone who is there with us and who loves the same Savior we do. God, break any divisiveness in this church. If there be any hint of division in this church, if there be any hint of hierarchy in this church, if there be any hint of racism in this church, God, I pray that you would take it away from this church today, that you would bring repentance. Lord, we celebrate your supper for what you did. Jesus, you are holy. You are God. You are our King. You are our Lord. Amen.